Well, again, good evening, everyone. My name is Amy. Um, kids, if you don't already have a notebook, I am going to be reading a fairy tale. I'm going to be talking about all the things God made. So you could draw any creature that you love in your notebook as kind of a reminder of what we talked about today. So I want to invite you to go and get one if you don't have one already. Anyway, for the next three weeks, I'm going to be preaching from the book of Psalms. And my hope for these weeks is really simple. I want us to be people who pray the Psalms. So just to start at the very beginning, what are Psalms? Well, above all, they are prayers. There are 150 of them. They're arranged in a book. They span the whole human experience. And they're composed as poems. And for the most part, they're meant to be sung, which is why we are learning how to do that. And in this really, really excellent, highly recommended, kind of cheesy 80s cover book uh, <laughs> on the Psalms called Answering God by Eugene Peterson, he calls the Psalms prayer masters. These are the prayers that teach us to pray. And Peterson writes, as we apprentice ourselves to these masters and learn to use their tools, we become more and more ourselves. And so this week, I want to talk about that process of becoming more ourselves as we pray the psalms. And specifically, we're going to look at Psalm 104, which we just chanted, and you guys were amazing. And we're going to use it to talk about how the psalms inform all the ordinary moments of our lives. And so to kick us off, I want to invite all of you into an ordinary moment from my life. So for a minute, just pretend Imagine we're in my house. Imagine I have pushed all my unfolded laundry to the side. I've made room on my really worn-out IKEA couch, and we're all sitting around so that we can do something really ordinary together so that we can read aloud from one of my kids' favorite books. And this is from the opening to The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen. Once upon a time, there was a very bad goblin, so bad, in fact, that he was a demon. One day, this bad goblin created a huge mirror that had magic powers. Anything beautiful that was reflected in it shrank to almost nothing. Everything that was worthless or ugly became large and looked worse than ever. When seen in this mirror, the loveliest landscapes looked like boiled spinach and the warmest people became cold and unfriendly. How amusing, the demon said, laughing at this invention. Well, those who studied at his goblin school, for he ran a goblin school, declared the mirror wondrous. But student goblins are show-offs. Not wanting to leave well enough alone, these goblins decided to fly up to heaven with the mirror to sneer and scoff at the angels there. But the higher they flew, the harder it became to hold on to the mirror, until suddenly it dropped from their hands to the earth and shattered into a hundred million, million, million pieces. Some of the fragments were nearly invisible, and the wind carried them all over the world. Every little fragment had the same power as the whole mirror. Whenever one flew into someone's eye, it would stick there, and from then on, that person would only see the bad side of life. If a fragment stuck in somebody's heart, the heart became a block of ice. 
Well, I wanted to start with this story because it gives kids a framework for understanding what is wrong with the world. And even though this framework is imaginary and there aren't actually magic mirror pieces scattered all over the earth, it does convey something that is really true. Because there is this way that we can see the world that's false and distorted, that assumes that sin and darkness and mockery and hatred and enemies are the end of the story, that those are the realest things in the universe. And so in that sense, we all have shards of glass in our eyes and in our hearts. But the Psalms remove glass from our eyes. As we learn to pray them, the Psalms transform our vision. They train us to see the world as it really is. They remove the distortion. They give us a new framework. There is this deep spiritual God reality that's hidden in the ordinary stuff of the world. And the Psalms train us to see it and to participate in it and to order our lives by it. And in fact, the early church often talked about the Psalms as a mirror. But unlike the hobgoblin's mirror, this Psalm mirror reveals the truth about who we are and about who God really is. This is a mirror that transforms whoever looks into it. It's a mirror of beholding and becoming. So we're going to look into that mirror tonight in Psalm 104. Now, full disclosure, we only chanted about half of the psalm. I felt like that was enough of a challenge for us amateurs. But for homework, I would really love for all of you to go home and read the whole thing. It has badgers and wild donkeys and sea monsters, and it's just stunning. So Psalm 104 begins with an echo of the book of Genesis. We see God in all his glory doing what God does, making stuff. He's wearing these clothes of pure light, and he's spreading out the heavens. And then like this magisterial carpenter, he builds a home for himself in what he just made. He frames out his living room in the sea. He parks clouds in his driveway. He sets a sidewalk on the wind. Not only has God made the world, but he's taken up residence in it. This is a picture of a very with us God a God who lives where we live, a God who is as close to us as light and air. And then verse 4 says, You make winds your messengers and flames of fire your ministers. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, like the psalmists were, then a bunch of images might spring to mind when you hear about this wind and fire being messengers. You might remember when God spoke to Moses from a fiery bush, or when he sent a wind to cut through the Red Sea to free his people from slavery. You might remember how he sent fire from heaven over and over at the request of the prophet Elijah to show that he is God. And that's actually what the disciples were asking about in that gospel reading that Aaron just read when they go through that Samaritan village and they look at Jesus and they're like, hey, do you want us to ask God to rain down some fire from heaven? And just as a reminder, Jesus is like, no, settle down. But in all these stories, God is using the raw materials of the world as his messengers and his ministers. He's using the fire and the wind he's made to communicate with his people, to save them and to form them. 
And God is still doing that. A few weeks ago, we read the story of Pentecost. It was sort of a moment of holy chaos in here. When God sent wind and fire to the disciples to show them that the Holy Spirit was with them and in them, the same Spirit that's in us now. And at Pentecost, that wind and that fire signaled that God's message of salvation through Jesus was now going out through the disciples, through the church, to all the nations of the earth, healing and reconciling people everywhere. And we heard more about this going out in the passage Hannah read from Acts, and we're looking forward to hearing about this going out from our team that's in West Asia. God is still making wind and fire his messengers, and he's doing it through his Holy Spirit in us. Well, the next section of the text focuses on another element, this time water. And through talking about water, about the deeps, the psalmist is showing that God not just made the world, he not just resides in the world, he not only communicates and saves through the world, but he's governing the world. He's holding everything together all the time. This is an orderly universe. It's governed by a God who sets boundaries, who keeps promises, who is good. Every drop of water in this psalm obeys God's voice. It goes where he tells it to. It heeds the promise that he made to Noah that the waters will never again cover the earth. And that's why I love the image that's on our slides this week, because we see Jesus seated on that rainbow of God's promise as he rules over everything. So why? What's the point of governing every drop of water? Well, the next group of verses tells us, because this well-ordered water travels down the hills and it brings forth grass for cattle and plants for us. The psalmist is saying that everything in the universe is set into motion so that we have enough to eat, so that our cows are fed, and our pantries are full, and we can celebrate with one another around the table. And in this way, our vision of God in this psalm moves from the cosmic down to the homey. It goes from big to little. We started off with God clothed in light and walking on the winds, but we end up here with bread. And at Incarnation, we repeat this pattern every week in our Eucharist celebration where we start by singing holy, holy, holy with all the saints and angels in heaven, but we end in the ordinary stuff of bread and wine. And we take this cosmic, glorious God into our bodies, in the raw material of the universe, in the ordinary stuff in our pantries, in flour and oil and water and wine. And then finally, in the last set of verses, we get the most ordinary stuff of all. We get waking and sleeping, working and resting. We get all the patterns of activities, all the needs of our bodies that fill our days. And these verses reveal what God does all night while we sleep. He's out working. He's feeding lions. Like so much of the Old Testament, this section reminds us that God works while we sleep. He's always holding the universe together while we do nothing. 
And that is the context from which we go about every ordinary day of our lives. We go to work, we set our hands to our tasks every morning after we have rested in the sustaining power of the God of the universe. After he has fed us bread and oil and wine, after he has taken care of us, and we go out to work in this created world where God dwells, where he is always revealing himself. This is the context of every ordinary thing we do every day. So earlier, I invited you into my ordinary life, but actually this psalm is singing to us that there is no ordinary life. Because the whole universe is shot through with the glory of the God who made it, who is actively holding it all together, who's always telling us a story about himself in all the ordinary stuff. And so as we engage reverently and faithfully with that ordinary stuff, God draws us into his life and he transforms us. We don't participate in the life of God by floating off and doing something spiritual. We do it by emptying the dishwasher, by folding the laundry, by reading a story, sitting at a hospital bed, eating bread, and drinking wine. Most of our life is spent in ordinary time, handling ordinary matter, and this is the place of our transformation. This is the place we meet God. And the Psalms train us to see that and to know that deep in our bones. Well, when we begin to see that and know that, it changes everything. Because suddenly we see that every last particle in the universe has value and that that has radical implications for how we live. Because it means we must be people who see and uphold the value of created things. It means we must be people who protect the dignity of the poor, of people with disabilities, of children in the womb, of immigrants and prisoners, of our parents and our neighbors and our own bodies, every person that God has knit together. It also means we reject ways of life that waste and abuse and degrade what God has made that reduce humans to just purchasers and producers. And it means we see every drop of water and every blade of grass and every grape that's on the vine as this miracle of God's craftsmanship that's worth our wonder and our care. The Psalms show us what is real, and once we see that, we are changed. So the mirror in the Snow Queen If you remember, it couldn't get carried up to heaven. It was too heavy. It bent and it fell and it shattered because it couldn't bear the weight of reflecting this lie about who God is. But the book of Psalms is a mirror that corrects the lie and reveals the truth that we live in this God-infused world. And this mirror actually carries us to heaven. It pulls us into the life and mission of God. This is what we were made for. It's what I want for all of us more than anything. So let's become people who pray the Psalms. 
So how? How do we do that? How do we apprentice ourselves to the prayer masters, as Eugene Peterson said? Well, we do what Jesus did and what the early church did and what Christians around the world have always done. Again, from that Eugene Peterson book, this is all. We open our Bibles to the book of Psalms and we pray them sequentially, regularly, faithfully, across our lifetime. This is how Christians for most of the Christian centuries have matured in prayer. Nothing fancy, just doing it. The praying itself is deliberate and leisurely, letting, as St. Benedict said, the motions of the heart come into harmony with the movements of the lips. Well, our Anglican tradition has actually made this really easy for us. They've arranged all the psalms for daily reading, morning and evening, so that we can pray through all 150 of them every month. And those are in our new Books of Common Prayer, which have not yet hit our pews, but don't worry. Uh, the same order of psalm reading is contained in these little Praying Through the Yearbooks that are on that welcome table in the back. And I would love... Here, here's a picture of the table where they're listed. I would love for all of you to take one home if you haven't already and to pick up the one you have at home if you already have it and try reading the morning and evening psalms this week. And if you do and you want to add like a spontaneous riff on the psalmist prayers, that's great. Maybe tomorrow's morning psalm reminds you to pray for children in detention centers. Maybe the evening psalm reminds you that you were really greedy last week or really unkind to your coworkers. All of this can become part of praying the psalms. All of this is a way of looking into the mirror, of beholding and becoming. So let's pray. <clears throat>